What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. This is our program where we are uh, basically reaching out to our non-Catholic brothers and sisters, asking the question, what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? If you'd like to try to answer that question for us, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And uh, you can always send us an email. That email address is ctc at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, sitting in today for Tom Price. Charles Beery is producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson, handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every day, Dr. David Anders, how are you? Jack, I'm all right. How about you? Terrific, thanks. Listen, I wanted to take a minute right here at the top of the program. This is not the topic of this program. Um, and nor will it become the topic of this program during the day today. But uh, with all of the atrocities that have been documented uh, in the Middle East over the last 36 to 48 hours, I just wanted to take a moment at the top of the show um, just to uh, just take a moment to pray for everybody who's involved in that situation uh, and that it would be peacefully resolved and that people in uh, that quiet place in their heart would hear the voice of God and would come to their senses. And to that end, if everybody out there in Radio Land would join us, we would appreciate it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of thy death, amen. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for pray us. For in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I have an email here from Beth, and she says, hello. I've been asked by my pastor to meet with someone who went through the RCIA program a year or so ago but couldn't come into the church due to an annulment. That situation is resolved and he is ready to proceed. What would you suggest as the best way to evaluate his readiness? Would examining his knowledge of the main doctrines of the church and the creed help? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So that's, that's not where I would start, actually. I would start with his willingness to take on the Catholic form of life. Um, is he willing to meet the obligations of Catholic life? Is he, is he committed to uh, Catholic moral teaching, um, Catholic liturgical practice? Uh, the, that's, that's really first, right? That's, that's where I would begin. And, and you don't have to have a Ph.D. in theology to become a Catholic. If he, if he affirms everything that the Catholic Church declares to be revealed by God— uh, and he has a basic understanding of the kerygma, that Christ, uh, the God-man, was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, died for our sins, and rose and ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit among us for the forgiveness of sins, and the Church as the mediator of grace. I, I really think that's 
uh, I mean, that, 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 that's the core of the, of the confession of faith, essentially the Apostles' Creed. And if he believes that, you know, if he's not able to articulate all the fine points of Catholic doctrine, it's less important than, um, than the be committed to Christ, to God, to the Church, and is committed to living a Catholic life. So, you know, if he said, well, you know, I, I like everything about the Catholic Church, but you know that, uh, that uh, you know, that, that, that no contraception thing, I don't, I think, I don't think I'm going to do that one. You know, I'm going to leave that one out. Or, you know, I like, I like the Catholic things fine, but, uh, you know, I'm, I have this uh, side gig as an abortion doctor, and I don't think I want to quit that. You know, that would be very problematic. But if he's not able to articulate every Christian doctrine, it's not, shouldn't keep him out of the faith. Heidi's watching us on YouTube and wants to know what is a charismatic Catholic. Um, yeah, thanks. And I, I, I take it you're not referring to a Catholic, Catholic with a really outgoing personality, right? <laughs> um, so the charismatic movement um, begins uh, really in about 1900 in Protestantism, um, something called the Pentecostal movement, which is the precursor of the charismatic movement. There were some uh, Pentecostal holiness preachers that took the view that every Christian should manifest the miraculous gifts of the Spirit enumerated in 1 Corinthians, like speaking in tongues and prophecy and healings, and and that a genuine New Testament church would, would give evidence of that kind of behavior. It was normative for Christians. And uh, denominations came out of that, like the Assemblies of God is probably the most prominent one, and many others that have followed as well. The charismatic movement is, uh, was sort of inspired by uh, the ebullient form of worship and the use of spiritual gifts that they saw in Pentecostalism, but they wanted to separate it from some of Pentecostalism's dogmatic opinions, like the idea that every Christian necessarily should speak in tongues. That's a, that's a Pentecostal belief. Charismatics took the line that, hey, you know, speaking in tongues might be great, uh, it might be useful, but uh, it's not normative for everybody. It's just something that's allowable and maybe we should pursue it, but with a little bit more moderation. And the charismatic movement is something that the Catholic Church blessed. So Pope Paul VI said that is, in a, that is in a, it's an available spirituality for Catholics. It's not normative, uh, but a Catholic can go that route if he wants to. And that's really the difference between a Catholic charismatic and a, and a straight-up Pentecostal. The Pentecostal says, you have to do this stuff. The Catholic charismatic says, I like to do this stuff. And the Church says, you can. Uh, so there are some congregations in the Catholic Church, some parishes, that are particularly sort of embrace this spirituality. You might go to a Mass on Sunday morning and um, see a bit more lively action than you would at another parish. But typically... Charismatic phenomena in the Catholic Church are is generally restricted to things like prayer meetings outside the liturgy, where people deliberately cultivate this spirituality. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. We'd love to hear from you. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? 833-288-3986. Uh, Sue in Appleton, Wisconsin, says she loves the show, but she has a question. What exactly does it mean to offer ourselves to God at or during Mass? Can you give me a few examples of how to do this? Yeah, thanks. So the, the, the thing that makes a sacrifice is the intention. So if you want to know the difference between a barbecue and a, and a, and a Hebrew burnt offering, right? It's not in the slaughter of the animal and the immolation of the animal. It's in the intent. What is it being offered for? Is it, you know, for a backyard barbecue or is it a gift given to God? And the same thing is true in our own life. Merely the intent to make my life of service to God and neighbor, to practice the virtues, to be obedient to God, to accept what providence sends my way, is the act of internal sacrifice that we're all called to make. It's EWTN's call to communion with Dr. David Anders. 
me, 288-833-288. EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, first up today is Max. He is in Clovis, California, listening on the Amazon Echo. Max, you are on with Dr. David Andrews. Okay, I just love your program. God bless you guys. Uh, I was uh, listening to talk radio, you know, about a couple hours ago, and they said that the Pope has blessed same-sex marriages. I couldn't believe it because, uh, you know, the Pope can't do that. I just want to know what your take is on it. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Well, my take is that you should get your news from ncregister.com. E- That's EWTN my advice to you. You're getting some bad info there, Max. Exactly. <laughs> I, I'm not surprised that that is the way the secular media has spun the story. But if you actually read what the Pope said on this topic, he he said the opposite of what he has claimed to have said. The Pope said that the Church can never have any sacrament or sacramental which would seem to be a blessing for a specifically gay or homosexual union. He, he, he categorically ruled that out, period, end of paragraph. What is creating the, the hay in the secular media is that he went on to say that if someone approaches the church for a blessing, period, of any kind, that it, that it uh, implies that that person is desiring to have a closer union to God in the church— and that the request for a blessing as such can prompt, shall we say, creative pastoral action on the part of the church's minister to try to find a way to meet the need, to, to meet the desire, to meet the person who is attempting to journey in some respect towards God in the church. But they can't do that in a way, the minister can't do that in a way which would be construed as the blessing of a gay union. And so... Did he say that you can give blessings to gay people? Yes, he said that. But he specifically mentioned you can't do it in a way that would seem to give approval to the gay union as such. And so to suggest that the Pope gave approval for blessing gay marriages is just absolutely wrong. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. 833 3986. I have an email from Tanner, and he says, Hello, gentlemen. I am from Ohio. I had some interesting conversations with Protestant friends recently, and they left us with two questions. Question one, does anything happen outside of God's will? And question two, does the devil actually have any power, or can he only lie and convince people to do bad things? He'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, theologians typically split hairs when talking about the divine will, and they'll talk about God's ordaining will and his permissive will. And so there are things that God permits. So you can speak about there being a will there of some kind that he doesn't positively decree. Um, So nothing happens outside of God's will in the larger sense, but there might be something that happens within God's permissive will that's not part of his decretive will, if you will, not something that he, that he positively seeks as an end. Um, and, uh, you know, in the human realm, we can see analogies to this all the time, and I've used this one on the air many times, and I'll use it again now. 
Uh, my father told me the story when he was a very little boy, you know, three or four years old. He went to a great aunt's house, and she had a wood-burning stove in her house. And his aunt and his mother told him, Louis, don't go near the wood-burning stove. You will get burned. They did not want him to do it. And he gave them a, a, a sly little look and held out his hands and started walking to the wood-burning stove like, I'll show you. And they warned him again, don't touch the wood-burning stove. And he got closer and closer and closer until, of course, he touched it and burned his ten little fingers. And he cried, and they picked him up and took care of him. And you can ask yourself the question, well, you know, did they want him to touch the stove? No. Could they have stopped him? Yes. Did they allow it to happen? Yes. Did they foresee that it was going to happen? Yes. Why did they stop it? Why didn't they stop him? Well, because two reasons. One, they wanted him to learn to listen to his mother and his aunt and to learn the hard way not to touch wood-burning stoves. They did give him fair warning. And he did disobey, and he suffered the consequences, and they allowed it to happen. Did they will for it to happen? Only in a very extended sense. You know, it's interesting. One thing you said there that, you know, and I've heard you tell that story before, but just kind of leapt off the page at me today, is is they gave him plenty of warning. Yes. You know, we, we act as though God is negatively impacting our lives out of nowhere, and we have this, like, piece of literature known as the Bible in about 2,000 years of history that should warn us about touching the stove. And we have nature, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, like, because the Catholic position on morality is that God doesn't command anything that's not actually in accord with the good of our nature, which is why we have this thing called natural law. You can discern moral imperatives just from the nature of reality. And, you know, don't pick up a hammer and hit yourself in the head with it. And then if you do, don't, don't fuss at God. Oh, the question, does the, does the devil have any actual power? Um, yeah, he does, but, he's, but, it's, but he has a—there are inherent weaknesses to the devil, and one of them you've already laid your finger on, which is the devil can't will good for its own sake. Next up is Sue. She is in Chicago listening on WSFI Radio. Sue, you are on with Dr. David Anders. Hello, Dr. Anders. Thank you very much for taking my call. This is not political. This is um, just— Dad, um, we're lifelong Catholics, and my grandson mentioned yesterday, Grandma, why are the people in Israel, especially the children, why are they being hurt or killed? Where is God? And he said, I'm supposed to have faith in him, and I will, because he loves God. But he said, why isn't he coming down from heaven and saying, you know, the war in Ukraine, enough of this enough of this. I know we have free will. It's hard for me to tell him, because I'm even doubting at three in the morning, not doubting God, but why enough? Our world is imploding, it seems like, in many ways. But this, what's coming out of Israel as a, all wars is so horrific. And, I mean, I, I just had to stop watching it yesterday, because I was crying, but, and we're not allowing him to watch it, but he'd heard about it. So, I'm sorry this isn't a very academic question to you, but where is he, and why isn't he stopping this? Okay, I'm sorry. Sue, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. And if I could ask you something, Sue, please don't ever apologize to me for not asking an academic question. I mean, these are real questions. These are spiritual questions. These are existential questions that go to the heart of our of our Catholic life and our humanity. And there's a whole sector of our audience that's cheering right now <laughs> that somebody asked a non-academic question. And and if the Catholic faith can't address our deepest, most existential needs, then 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 well, what good is it, right? So you, you don't apologize for the the lack of academic rigor or whatever. Um, but for what it's worth, you've asked 
the, the humdinger of academic questions. And, and theologians call this the problem of evil, and it's, it's one of the primary arguments brought academically against the idea that God exists or that God is good or that God is omniscient or omnipotent. So it is quite academic, even though you didn't intend that. Um, now, and I will tell you that uh, Jack and I are right there with you. Like as humans uh, living in this world, we also are, are sitting here questioning, we're suffering, we're, we're, we have angst, we worry, we don't understand the divine will. We, it's, it's hard to confess uh, divine benevolence sometimes, to believe that God is good in the face of horrific evil. Um, and, and so before I give you an academic answer, I want to give you a, a, like an existential orientation. And that is that your sense of doubt and uncertainty and your inability to give an answer and the, the real palpable uh, anxiety that you feel, that your, that your child feels, that attitude is endorsed in the Bible. And so you know, if you've ever read Psalm 88, for example, Psalm 88 is the prayer of someone who is overwhelmed by evil. All of his friends have been taken away from him. He is exposed to mortal danger. Uh, and the psalmist says, you know, God, you're not here, and my one companion is darkness. Amen. And there's no conclusion, there's no, there's no climax of the psalm where suddenly God swoops down and solves this person's dilemma. It's just, people are suffering, people are dying, I've lost everything, I'm desolate, I'm alienated, you're not around, you said you'd be around, I don't understand, amen. It's pretty dire stuff. And it's always struck me that the Holy Spirit canonized that psalm. Put that in the Bible. And there are many others as well. That's just probably the most poignant. The attitude, or, or Job is another character. God, why is this happening? God finally shows up to Job and says, not going to tell you. Human uh, angst in the face of evil is part of the human condition. The Bible recognizes it as part of the human condition. And even in the person of Jesus, the Garden of Gethsemane, we see our Lord say, please take this cup from me, but not my will but thine be done. And so at one level, the challenge of Christian life is in the face of evil that we don't understand, for which we can't give a sufficient reason to be able to say with our Lord, not my will but thine be done. And you say, well, is that a cheat, Andrews? Well, here's the thing about it that makes it not a cheat. The answer, I think, comes ultimately not in the fact that Jesus said it, but in the fact that Jesus said it, in that Christ himself is the answer to the problem of evil, that God sent his Son into the world to be the redemption of the world, and that we find the ability to say yes to the will of God in spite of the circumstances by our identity with Christ who gave himself up to evil for our sake. So that's not an academic answer, that's a spiritual, existential answer. I identify with Jesus, who in his own life was able to surrender totally to the will of God, uh, in spite of the horrific evil that was going to be poured out on him personally. So that's, that's, a, that's a major part of the answer. Um, now here's the academic answer, which I find totally unsatisfying at the spiritual level. I mean, academically it works, it doesn't touch me in my heart. And that is that God allows evil because he intends to bring out of it a greater good. I mean, that's unassailable academically. Yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't speak to the child who's suffering. That doesn't speak to the person who dies in war. Oh, great, I'm part of a plan. God's going to bring a greater good. Oh, ha, ha, I'm so happy about that. No, you don't feel that way. You feel utterly bereft and alienated and alone. 
And so that can't ever be the sufficient pastoral response. Um, and then finally, and this is also, to me, it's satisfying. Maybe it won't be to many other people. When I have been exposed to horrific suffering in my own life or in the life of my family, um, it, it helps me, first of all, to identify with that psalmist in Psalm 88, to identify with the position of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then finally, to recognize that, um, uh, that God is unlike me, that God is unlike humans, that there's something about God that is so utterly transcendent that, um, that uh, for me to apply merely human anthropomorphic char- uh, characteristics to him, to construe God's personality as if it were like my own, um, uh, is, is ultimately to lead me into frustration, and that I have to recognize that all of the language of Scripture and theology is a kind of accommodation to human weakness, and there's something about God that's utterly ununderstandable, that he's ineffable and beyond me. And, uh, and for me personally, that's actually comforting. If I, if I don't try to constrain God by putting him into a box of my own intellectual invention, but to acknowledge that there's that in God that's complete mystery, I find that easier to cope with the suffering if I sit there and snuggle up to Jesus. Does that help, Sue? Thank you very much. Just keep these people in your heart. Thank Absolutely. you. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Sue. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Barbara in Clayton, North Carolina. She is a first-time caller, and we may have to carry this over to the next segment, Barbara, but I want to get you on to ask your question. You're on with Dr. Anders. Oh, Dr. Andrews, it's so good to talk to you. It's good to talk to um, you. I was, thank you. I was confused by something you said one day uh, about thought not being sinful, that you, it had only acts were considered sinful. And yet, in our confession, we say in our thoughts. I can fix that. I can solve that problem for you. I'm going to do it quickly because we're going to a break. Thank you for the question. We need to distinguish a couple things. We need to distinguish thought from intention from inclination. And what the church teaches is that an inclination to evil is not sinful. And the thought, merely the cognition, like to, to think of some evil thing, is not in itself sinful. The intention to commit evil is evil. And so when we confess sinful thoughts... We're talking about intentions to do wrong, right? So it's, it's one thing, for example, for a guy to find a woman that he's not married to attractive. That, that's involuntary. He can't help that, right? It, it's just part of his humanity that he's going to find a woman attractive. Uh, he could even conceive the idea of some immoral action, and having the idea pop into his head is not itself a sin. The intention to pursue that line of reasoning for his own gratification, even if it doesn't eventuate in an actual act of adultery, that intention to pursue that, that would be sinful. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Frank, Julie, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls at 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.
Congratulations go out to another member of the EWTN radio family. Ablaze Radio in Duluth, Georgia is celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to Ken and Patricia Shivers and their team at WNRE 98.1 FM from all of us here at EWTN. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. Frank is up next in Jackson, Ohio, listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Frank, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hello, Dr. Anders. How are you today? Hi, fine. Thanks. How about you? I'm doing well. Um, Got a question for you here I've often thought about. Um, When I'm praying and my innermost thoughts and prayers with God when I'm struggling, when I'm suffering, when I'm trying to find my way. Does the devil know my innermost thoughts, my silent prayers, the words I whisper, and are those thoughts used, you know, to tempt and to derail me? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there there are a number of things that we can Uh, discern about this question. One is that St. Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that uh, that the devil is at work in the minds of unbelievers. That doesn't mean that he can read their thoughts, but it means that he can influence their thoughts. Um, And that's pretty clear from the scriptural evidence, and that's that's definitely the Catholic tradition, the 2,000-year tradition on interpreting that way. So uh, Evagrius Ponticus, for example, who's a theologian of the desert, one of the desert fathers, wrote extensively about the ways in which demonic temptation could affect the consciousness of the person. Um, Now, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, had a little bit more sophisticated idea of how that functions, and he he didn't have the advantages of modern neurology, so he didn't didn't understand the, the, the neurochemical basis of thought, but he recognized that there was a bodily aspect to our cognition. Uh, that we're, we're embodied creatures and that, that our thinking takes place within a material medium. So his opinion was that the fallen angels were good enough, they were good enough neurologists that they could observe the human brain and infer something about the kind of cognition that was going on, but they wouldn't have the specifics. Um, and, uh, and so they could, they could make an informed guess. And they're good students of human behavior and of your personal history. So they might be able to make a, a, a relatively good informed guess as to the content of your consciousness, but not know the specific thoughts of your mind. Um, but uh, so the long and the short of it is if you, if you stay in the state of grace, you remain in communion with Christ and the church, uh, you can rest assured that the devil is already doing you as much harm as he's capable of doing, and you're in the safest place you can be. Thanks, Frank. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? We'd love to have you answer that question for us. Or if you're in conversation, perhaps, with a a non-Catholic that's asked you a question that you are struggling with, give us a call at 833-288-3986. Julie is in Fort Worth, Texas, listening on the EWTN app. Julie, you are on with Dr. Anders. Hello. I was wondering if you could um, let me know if this is a a right analogy, um, that when we enter the Mass, that we are, I've heard we are present at Calvary. So are we like in a time warp that we can 
you know, I guess symbolically, I don't really know how to. I I am I am so glad that you asked that question. If you, I do not recommend that you do this, but if you Google search the phrase "Holy Sacrifice of the Mass" and time travel, you will find a lot of uh, amateur Catholic blogs and and uh, self-appointed theologians that will make the specific claim that the Mass is a form of time travel, even as you have suggested. And, uh, and that is absolutely false. There is a sophisticated form of that theory called the, the, the mystical view of the Mass that was put forth by a 19th century Benedictine liturgist named Odo Cassell, who postulated that the way the Mass relates to Calvary is this sort of mystical communion but in time and space. And that theory was explicitly rejected by Paul, not Paul, by Pius XII uh, in his encyclical Mediator Dei that he published on the Mass. So that, that theory was floated, and it was specifically repudiated by the Pope. All right, um, so there is a classic teaching on the relationship of the Mass to Calvary, and it is the teaching of the Council of Trent. And here's what the Council of Trent says. That the Mass and and Calvary contain the same victim. That would be Christ himself. But on Calvary, Christ, of course, is there being crucified in a bloody manner. He's put to death in a bloody manner. His blood is spilled on Calvary. In the Mass, the very same Jesus is present, but he's in a non-bloody manner. He's not dying. He's not being crucified in the Mass. Now, uh, let's get a little more specific. When we say that the same Christ is present on Calvary and in the Mass, are we saying that God has somehow yanked Jesus out of time and space from first century Palestine and translated him from the cross into the Mass? No. No. That's emphatically not the case. Um, that the Christ who is present in the Mass is, in fact, the glorified, risen Christ who is presently seated at the right hand of God. So Christ, as he exists in his proper person right now in heaven at the right hand of God, that Christ is the one who becomes present through transubstantiation on the altar. So that you get Jesus as he is now, not dead, not dying, not bleeding. Now, to underscore that fact, Thomas Aquinas asks a rhetorical question in the Summa. He says, if the apostles had celebrated Mass when Jesus was in the tomb, they didn't, but they could have. If they had, what would have been present in the Mass? And Thomas says, well, it would have been Christ's body, blood, and divinity, but not his human soul. Because on Holy Saturday, the human soul of Christ was, in fact, descended to the dead. Similarly, when Christ celebrated Mass at Holy Thursday, when he instituted the Mass, what was present in the Blessed Sacrament? It wasn't Jesus, you know, the next day on the cross in Calvary. It was, in fact, the very same Jesus who was seated at the table with the disciples. So Christ held himself in his own hands. That's how St. Augustine puts it. Right? And even now, when the priest celebrates Mass today, it is Christ as he exists in his proper person right now, right here now, not Jesus from 2,000 years ago. So the connection between the Mass and the Calvary is that the same victim is present, but the mode of his presence is different, one in a bloody manner, one in an unbloody manner. The same priest who offered the sacrifice 
effectuates both sacrifices. Christ, as the high priest, offered himself on the cross. In the Mass, the ministerial priest operating in persona Christi, in the place of Christ, offers the body of Christ to God. And, of course, it's offered for the same reason, which is to, to reconcile us to God. All right? And so, and so we'll say that there is a, there's a connection between the two, and the way um, uh, one theologian put it is he says the Mass and Calvary are specifically the same, but they are numerically distinct. So the Mass is a distinct sacrifice. It's not the same sacrifice of Calvary numerically. That's why on Monday your priest can say Mass, you know, for your surgery, and on Tuesday he can say it for the repose of your, your, your grandfather's soul, and on Wednesday he can say it for some other intention, because each Mass is itself a distinct oblation. This was the emphatic teaching of the Council of Trent, that the Mass is itself a proper sacrifice. It's not just Calvary somehow mystically translated to the present. And yet, the Protestant retort, the Protestant objection, hey, you Catholics think you're sacrificing Jesus all over again, doesn't have any force because we don't think that we're killing him. We're not, we're not putting him to death again. We don't think that Calvary is somehow insufficient to accomplish its ends, right? But we do believe that the Mass is itself a proper and distinct sacrifice containing the same victim, the same priest, offered for the same reason. But it's not, emphatically not, a form of time travel. You made me nervous there for a minute. I did? <clears throat> yeah, you said you could, uh, it could be uh, offered for someone having surgery on Monday, and then on Tuesday for the repose of the soul, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> okay, Monday didn't work. Different yeah. person. Different person. <laughs> Different person. Thank you so much, Julie. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, next up is Amanda. She's a first-time caller in Knoxville, Tennessee, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Amanda, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. I have a question. Um, my friend yesterday called me. She has been listening to Father Mike Smith's catechism in a year, and she is a cradle Catholic, and I'm a convert of 10 years. So um, she called to ask what my thoughts were on it she her and her husband own a bagel shop and they also own an italian kind of fast food restaurant and she said amanda do you think it's wrong that john and i are open on sundays because based on what the i mean we're supposed to be keeping holy the lord's day and is god going to judge me for making these people work and i said well I said, I think that is a question that is way above my my expertise. My gut tells me that what I told her and I said I would look into it is that, yes, no, you're not supposed to be doing servile work. Of course, if you're a police officer or something that is taking, you know, just like Jesus said in the Bible, like, I'm not. All right. My point is, I got you. I think I can help you. I appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So let Let's just cut to the chase and talk about the practice of the church here. In practice, the church does not demand that all Catholic restaurant owners shut down on Sunday. That that's just not the practice of the church. And I mean, I I guarantee you uh, that that there's a pretty good chance that the parish priest has probably gone and eaten at this shop after mass, right? Um, and accepted a lunch invitation. Uh, I mean, I've I've been out to lunch on Sunday afternoons and you know, going to a restaurant and seeing a whole bunch of priests, you know, hanging out, enjoying themselves, you know. So that's just not the practice to say you have to shut down a restaurant on Sunday. Um, let me put this in context a little bit. Um, so 
one mistake that Sabbatarians have made over the centuries is to assume that the Christian Feast of Sunday is simply the Jewish Sabbath knocked one day forward in the calendar, as if, as if we just shifted the calendar but kept everything else about the Sabbath commandment the same. And that's not true. There's a, there are fundamental differences between the Jewish Sabbath and Sunday. Uh, the Jewish Sabbath was, uh, first of all, not a day of worship. That's where the Seventh-day Adventists have got this wrong. It was a day of rest from work. It was not a day of worship. Every day in the Jewish calendar was a day of worship. Sacrifices were offered every day. One day was set aside for rest. Um, the Christian Feast of Sunday was not initially a day of rest. It was a feast of, uh, it, was a, it was a celebration of worship to celebrate the Lord's resurrection from the dead. And of course, until, um, until uh, Theodosius, the Roman Empire did not have Sunday as a, any kind of official date on the calendar, so all Christians were going to work on Sunday, right? I mean, they, they'd get up and meet early in the morning before the sun rose. They would celebrate Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, and they'd go about their life because they lived in civil society where they had to, right? Um, now, later on, the Church did say, yes, we, we ought to, that the spirit of the Sabbath commandment where, where rest from work, but not as an absolute good in itself, but so you can facilitate the worship of God and spending quality time with one's family and, and, and to remember God in all things, it is appropriate to set aside uh, a rest from servile work, but, but not with the kind of strictness that was understood in the Sabbath commandment of the Jews. And, of course, St. Paul is very, very clear, especially in the book of Colossians, that Christians are not bound by the Mosaic law with regard to, to Sabbath observances. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you, the, if you have employees and they don't have time off and you're making their life miserable, well, then you're, you're doing something against natural justice as well as against the spirit of the Sabbath commandment. Uh, but but just to keep your restaurant open and, and serve Catholic families that want to spend time together and, and enjoy themselves and, you know, re- relax after they've been to Mass is not intrinsically evil. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for EWTN News Nightly tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. With Tracy Sable, President Joe Biden delivers remarks on the ongoing conflict in Israel. Plus, delegates at the Synod on Synodality participate in a special service at St. Peter's Basilica. Get this and all the news. EWTN News Nightly tonight, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Back to the Republic of Texas we go. Mike is in Arlington listening to the podcast. Mike, you're on with Dr. David Anders. Hey, Dr. Dave. Hey, Jack. Um, quick question for you. I'm hoping you can fill in the gaps of the early Reformation history for me. So how do we get from the 95 Theses to the claim that we are justified by faith alone? That seems like a big theological jump there. What, what happened in between? Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So to really understand Martin Luther's intellectual evolution, you have to go back before the 95 Theses. You have to go back to Luther's education and to his spirituality. And uh, Luther, a lot of influences on Luther, uh, the Rhineland mysticism of Meister Eckhart and, uh, and what was called the German theology was an influence on Luther. And this was a, this was a spirituality that sought to completely subjugate the will uh, under uh, sort of d- divine almighty power. Uh, it sought to kind of crush the will and destroy the will and, and, and make us almost passive in the face of, uh, of divine uh, um, omnipotence. 
uh, Luther was heavily influenced by nominalist uh, theology. Um, nominalism is the view that there are no uh, there are no essential natures that can put a demand on either the moral life or God's action. So, you know, even things like, you know, you couldn't say there's such a thing as human nature, right? Human nature as such, that, that there are exit moral exigencies that flow from that, that this is an abstract debate about the nature of universals in particulars in, in metaphysics. But the long and the short of it was if you get rid of universals, if you get rid of essences and natures, what you're left with is just the divine declaration, just the act of a divine will that declares uh, this is the way things are in a way that's, that's there is no nature for it to be attached to. And so it's, it's, it can have the appearance of being utterly arbitrary. Um, so if God calls you righteous, you're righteous. There is no intrinsic reality to righteousness. There's no intrinsic reality to anything. There's just what God says. It's just just divine fiat that makes it to be the case. So William of Ockham, who was uh, the great nominalist philosopher of uh, late antiquity, would pose questions like, uh, could God become incarnate in an ass instead of a human being? This kind of thing, which strikes many of us as blasphemous to say, but these are the kind of thought experiments that he was working with. And Luther was deeply formed by, by nominalist philosophy. He, he once said of William of Ockham, Ockham was his master. Um, and uh, he was also schooled by a man named Gabriel Beale. Gabriel Beale was a 15th century scholastic theologian. Luther knew Beale backwards and forwards. Um, Beale was, uh, within a nominalist context, was famous for the doctrine that if you, you do what is within you, facere quod in se est is the Latin phrase, that God will uh, supply what is lacking. And for Luther, who now we're getting into his personality, who had a particularly neurotic personality, was very, very scrupulous, the idea that I have to do what's in me and then God will make up the difference, which, by the way, is not a great formula for Catholic theology, led to a kind of endless introspection, how do I know I've done enough? How do I know I've done enough? And the accusation that that nominalist philosophy was semi-Pelagian, which is a heresy the Church condemned the Synod of Orange in the 6th century, uh, has some force. Like, if, I, if, it, if the initiative has to come from my free will and I can never have adequate assurance that I've done what I have to do, I can never have any peace. And then Luther had this very, very scrupulous conscience, and so he was always agonizing over his interior life and his state with God. And he would go to confession and just confess these little peccadillos that meant absolutely nothing. So his, his confessor, Johann von Staupitz, once said, Luther, I wish you would go off and commit murder or adultery or something so you'd have something decent to confess because you're bringing all this nonsense in here. So this is kind of what's all in Luther's head. Uh, Jared Wicks, who's a Jesuit historian, wrote a wonderful book on the early Luther called Young Man, no, I'm sorry, Man Yearning for Grace, that was the name of the book, Man Yearning for Grace, about Luther's state of mind before 1517. And in, in that text, he quotes Luther as saying, that if a man wants to be saved, he has to act like he alone exists, right? A, a, a terribly subjective and individualistic conception of the spiritual life. Nothing like the communitarian social ethic that really should characterize Catholic moral life. So this is where Luther's coming from. He's a very neurotic conscience, but he's a brilliant man. Luther's a tremendous intellect and highly creative. And if you've ever met autodidacts that are like that, really, really smart, creative, uh, people, but kind of anti-authoritarian, and they, they, they you know, love to sort of think themselves into a box, that's Luther. And so he is, uh, he's meditating on the, on the Book of Romans, and he, he arrives at his, at his uh, sort of unique, um, he would call them insights, I would call them deformations of, of Pauline theology, but they're inspired by all these influences, by this uh, uh, Rhineland mysticism, by nominalism, 
um, uh, by, uh, by Gabriel Beale's uh, theology, by his own idiosyncratic personality and his own experience of the scrupulous conscience. There's a debate in Reformation scholarship about when that takes place. It's Luther's so-called tower experience. Um, is it before 1517? Is it after 1517? The scholars are unsure. 1517 comes along, you get the 95 Theses, but you begin to get a clue in the 95 Theses that, that more is at stake here than the selling of indulgences, that Luther's own particular neurotic concerns are at issue. So one of the theses, he, he makes the claim that, you know, we don't really need purgatory because life itself is already a living hell, right? His experience of Christian life is so tortured, and that begins to come through in the 95 Theses. Um, but he doesn't get to Sola Scriptura until 1519. Um, he is confronted by, by John Eck, the Catholic polemicist, in a debate, and Eck pushes him to the wall and forces Luther to admit that many of his ideas have already been condemned, particularly at the Council of Constance in 1415. And only when Luther is pushed to recognize that the church and tradition have already rejected his point of view does Luther come to the realization that, well, if I'm going to maintain this gospel that I proclaim, I have to, I have to jettison the church and tradition. And so he says, well, I'll stand on the word of God alone. He was forced to it by polemical necessity. And, uh, and that he had this kind of... Uh, uh, this uh, this love affair with his own internal thought processes is evidenced when he would sometimes wake up at night and say, "Am I alone right?" And he would say, "Yeah, basically, I'm alone right." He he had a sense of himself as a kind of an apostle or prophet, and he was, you know, this this charismatic figure that was going to reform the church and save the world. And he had a very apocalyptic worldview. He thought the world was going to end in his lifetime. And he didn't really care, you know, uh, fire and brimstone, hell and high water. He was going to march through and do his thing. Um, uh, Fifteen By 1520, late 1519, he wrote a sermon called Two Kinds of Righteousness that really lays out the fully developed doctrine of justification by faith alone. And then 1520, he writes a book called On the Freedom of the Christian uh, that articulates it again. So there is a process there. There's a theological development. Uh, it has deep roots, and so by 1520, you know, he's he's fully embraced the whole Reformation message, and so Pope Leo publishes Exerge Domine and excommunicates him. Patricia's in Leesburg, Virginia, listening on the EWTN app. Patricia, you're on with Dr. Anders. Hi, Dr. Anders. Hi. Um, I, teach, I teach catechism, and I use um, the book of Genesis with uh, students to help them with sacramental preparation. Good, thank you. My question, my question is, um, in in looking at Adam and Eve before the fall, their bodies appeared to be different than, and their bodies changed somehow after the fall. Could, has anybody represented, or is there any basis to to look at those original bodies as being like glorified bodies? Thank you. I appreciate the question. The Church has very specific teaching on this. Um, Adam and Eve did possess what are called preternatural gifts, but glory was not one of them. Uh, they had the preternatural gift of integrity, which meant that it was possible for them not to sin. Now, when you are glorified, it will be impossible for you to sin. It was possible for them not to sin. Why? Because they were created not with glory, but with grace. And their situation is similar to the holy angels. The Catholic teaching is that God created the angels with grace— um, but that, uh, but not glory, not glory. Some of them obeyed, some of them sinned, as you know. The ones that sinned, of course, lost the state of grace and were never admitted to the beatific vision. So Lucifer and the fallen angels have never had the vision of God. 
the, the holy angels that were immediately admitted to the vision of God experienced the beatific vision upon their act of obedience. So Adam and Eve were kind of like the holy angels in that way. They were created in the state of grace. They could have had the promise of glory in the beatific vision. They didn't. They sinned. They lost the state of grace. But, of course, unlike the fallen angels to, their, to Adam and Eve and their progeny, God still holds out the promise of the beatific vision. But we have to, we have to return to the state of grace and, and grow basically back into that condition of integrity where we no longer will to sin. And when our wills are totally united with God, then we are what the church calls saints. Um, Erica writes in, she wants to know, are you familiar with the Seven Sisters group? I am not. Okay, these it's basically women that sign up to pray for an hour for okay. the priests. Okay, fantastic. And Erica wants to know if it's okay if you split that hour up between four women. <laughs> you know, I, I think that with, with any devotion, the important part of the devotion is that you pray, you know. And, and it's possible to get so legalistic about them and that we become superstitious. You know, like if you think if you drop one Hail Mary out of your rosary that it's not going to work, you know. This isn't, you know, this isn't a magic formula. Right, and the, these kinds of things are delightful, and they're encouraging, and they help us to pray. But just pray—that's the important thing. Just you're, pray. You're raining on our Lutheran parade here. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN. As soon as uh, open line is over next hour, you can leave a comment on our listener comment line for Dr. Andrews or any of our hosts. On behalf of our host, Dr. David Andrews, our producer Charles Beery, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams sitting in today for Tom Price, asking you what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic. It's EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders.